Death and the awful abode of lost souls, whither my weakness long ago had sent him, had changed for every other eye but mine. And now I heard his voice, rising, swelling, thundering through the flaring light. And as I fell, the radiance increasing, increasing, poured over me in waves of flame. Then I sank into the depths, and I heard the king in yellow whispering to my soul, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right. Uh, look, if you've been listening to Eldersign for a while, then you know how much I absolutely love The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. It is going to be a long time, probably never really, before the mask is unseated from my list of favorite stories that we've covered. And so I'm very excited to take a minute here at the top of the show to let all of you know about an Indiegogo campaign to adapt the first four stories of the cycle into an independent feature film. Uh, And in fact, these are the four stories that we have covered so far on the show. It's a very cool project. It's very long overdue. And I personally can't wait to see a cinematic adaptation of just the sheer creepiness of the story, The Yellow Sign. So I hope you'll check it out. Hope you'll consider backing the film. You can find it on Indiegogo.com just by searching for The King in Yellow. But you can also much more easily just use the link in the show notes that I've got there for you. So check it out. Back the film. This is going to do a lot of work to bring this really awesome story cycle to much bigger attention. Uh, Spread the word about Robert W. Chambers. And also, it's going to help us usher in the reign of the benevolent monarch, Hildred Castain, that much more quickly. And uh, that's a world, I think, we all want to live in. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buda. In this episode, we'll be covering Fritz Leiber's story, The Sunken Land, originally published in 1942. This story was nominated by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters, and it is also the first story from a brand new Patreon ballot. It's also the only story that we're actually going to take from that ballot. Usually we take four or five. This time we're only taking one, and the reason is that the lag between stories being selected by our Patreon supporters and stories actually getting out on the air, uh, that had gotten to be over a year. And uh, mostly that was happening because of all the novellas that we keep doing. But in order to cut that gap down, we decided to do all the other entries on this ballot as a series of extra special Patreon episodes. And that includes the next installment in The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers, uh, the M.R. James version of a really great Indiana Jones story. We did our first August or Leth story, and we also did this really fantastic space horror story by Brian Evanson. Yeah, these were all really awesome stories and really great to cover. And If you're not already a patron supporter, if you haven't joined us on Patreon, please do to get access to these great stories. Uh, It's very reasonably priced, we think, to just get access to some of these stories. And we hope you'll join us uh, to get extra content from the network. Uh, We really love doing these bonus episodes. We love sharing it with our listeners. And uh, we hope it's a really good incentive for you to join us on Patreon so we can continue to grow the network. Yeah, I think uh, this year, 2021, we have done double the amount of episodes on Patreon that we actually promise we're going to do. So I think it's definitely worth the the cost of subscribing to that that channel for sure. But uh, yeah, let's turn our attention to this story because I am really, really excited for this one. This story here, this marks two important firsts for us, for the show, for Elder Sign. And one is that This is somehow, surprisingly, the very first sword and sorcery story that we have done on the show. This seems totally nuts to me. We're very close to the end of our third year on the air. Sword and sorcery is a massive part of weird fiction, and this is the first one that we're we're doing. But we are going to have more, uh, and we're going to have more right away, in fact, because the next story is actually going to be a Conan story, uh, an original Conan story by Robert E. Howard. But then also, this is our first Fawford and Grey Mouser story, and these stories are so massively important to the development of D&D, which then also means they are massively important to mainstream fantasy storytelling as it is being practiced right now in the early 21st century. And here too, right, we also may get more of these stories coming up because uh, another one of them is uh, on an upcoming Patreon ballot, also nominated by a a Patreon supporter, of course. So before we actually even get into this recap, Brandon, I want to kind of just take stock of the fact that this is a pretty big deal for us to be doing this story. And I'm I'm curious about your history with Fawford and Grey Mouser. I suspect this is actually really going to be your first encounter with them. Is that right? 
That's right. And uh, you might also be wondering if this is the first time I've heard of Fritz Leiber. And the answer is yes to that question as well. Uh, I'm not familiar with him at all, though the more I kind of read about him in in preparation for the show, I was astonished at how little I knew his work and his influence on the genres. But what I discovered in reading this story and, you know, in looking into him a little bit was, as you already pointed out, Glenn, how much influence he has on storytelling now. This story feels so fresh and so contemporary. I don't know. I think in about 25 minutes, our uh, our listeners will hear me make a joke about Stargate. I mean, this feels like a Stargate story <laughs> on some level. Uh, yeah, but th- this is an amazing story. I'm so glad we read it. And we have this great collection now, and there's, there's more books in the collection of the Fafford and Gray Mouse collection um, that we don't have yet for the show. But Man, I'm so glad I got exposed to Fritz Leiber through this show and then got to read this really super fun story that is exactly like storytelling found in some of my favorite kind of weird sci-fi TV shows. Yeah, I, I actually don't know Fritz Leiber all that well either, though, though I have read a handful of these stories. They were in these sort of like sword and sorcery anthologies that I read as a, as a teenager. Uh, and I actually remember pretty vividly when White Wolf, which was the, the company that published uh, Vampire the Masquerade RPG, among other things, got the rights to these and, and reprinted them in the, the 1990s. I didn't have them. Our library, I don't think, got them either. I may have read a couple stories out of that uh, at a moment when I was using the Barnes and Noble as a as a library. You know, where you buy a cup of coffee and then put the book back on the shelf when you're <laughs> when you're done thumbing through it, which works for short story collections, of course. Uh, but I'm aware of Liber's super importance in the development of of speculative fiction and really across the genres, fantasy and science fiction, and and also some supernatural horror. Actually, we get you know sort of blend here, sword and sorcery, often a blend of fantasy. And supernatural horror is, is what we're going to see in this uh, in this story. Uh, and I've read his novel, uh, The Big Time, which uh, won the Hugo and is this really groundbreaking time travel story. But otherwise, I don't really know him that well. And that's actually largely true of most of these writers uh, who were working after the Second World War, maybe between the Second World War and Vietnam. I tend not to know their work very well. I know the pulp era, and I know the New Wave era a lot better, I think, than I actually know the Golden Age, at least in terms of, of short stories, uh, for sure. So I'm excited to, to really dig into these as well. And I'm, I'm glad, though, you know, we, at this point, we don't know if we're going to necessarily cover the next uh, the next of these stories because we haven't had that vote yet, but we do know it's on the ballot. So I think there's a good chance that we'll get to do it. And, and that'll be awesome. I think Sword and Sorcery is something that we have been, been missing, and I have been wanting to do a pretty deep dive into these stories for a long time uh, because of how important they are to deal D&D, which has been a big part of my my life. I can't wait to cover more of these, and I hope we're able to. But regardless of whether we cover them or not, uh, I'm definitely going to be taking this collection down off the shelf you know, for some evening reading if I have a night free in the next year or two. Well, yeah, let's get to it then. Let's, let's get into this story. Let's start the recap here. Well, the story opens this way with a bit of dialogue. I was born with luck as a twin. I catch fish in the middle of the ocean. I rip up its belly and look, little man, what I find. And this is how we're introduced to Fafford and his companion, the Gray Mouser. And this is Fafford speaking. The two men are on a boat. They're fishing. And Fafford has found something in the fish's belly, as that dialogue just told us. What this thing is, well, it's covered in a little bit of slime. And the Gray Mouser sees what the object is. It's gold. First of all, so that is lucky, I suppose. But the object itself is a ring and a key. And the Grey Mouser automatically does not like this object. He thinks it's just giving off really bad vibes. And it's not just the object that the Grey Mouser doesn't like. It's the fact that they are taking a boat to the land of Lankmar, and they have to cross these uncharted depths of the sea. And he doesn't like the whole situation he's in then. He doesn't like seeing fish thrash about in the water. He doesn't like the weather. All in all, what the Grey Mouser wants is to get to Lankmar as soon as possible. But Fafford is much more at home in the water. And he's not as skeptical about this object as the Grey Mouser is. And I think just from reading this story that the Grey Mouser's skepticism of this object, of the way it was found, is rooted in the notion that getting something valuable without having earned it or worked for it is always going to lead to some sort of curse more than it is going to lead to a blessing. And that's kind of a a theme throughout this story, I think. 
But let's take a moment to examine this ring a little bit more. Though the Grey Mauser has traveled far and wide, he doesn't recognize the art style that is found on the inscriptions of the ring. The ring shows an image of the sea monster bringing down a ship, and maybe that's why the Grey Mouser is a little skeptical here. Uh, Fafford, though, has some idea of where the ring may have come from based on some legends he heard growing up, uh, legends told around the campfire when he was a boy. Fafford wonders what door the key unlocks. And the Grey Mouser basically says, um, you know, let's not find out. Let's just get to our destination. He wants Fafford to throw the ring overboard and to just move on with their lives. But Fafford doesn't do that. Instead, he just puts on the ring. He claims it's good for fighting because it's hefty. And he continues to shoot fish out of the water with a bow and arrow. Yeah, this is uh, this is a really awesome opening to this story. This is, first and foremost, an action story, right? Sword and sorcery usually is that. And so we start with the action. We don't really get any setup to it. There are no long introductions to the characters. There's, There's nothing really about why they're on this ship or, you know, at least nothing about like what immediately preceded their appearance here on this ship, their being on the ship. Just none of that. It's only... Bam, I found a ring. Let's go have an adventure about it. And and I also do really like what we get here about the, the characterization of Mauser as essentially a Cubs fan, right? <laughs> These good situations actually make him worry more uh, about the, the like the future cost. Uh, he's worried more about that than he is about bad situations. Like he would have preferred that they had just found like, <laughs> I don't know, a vial of poison or something in this fish very clearly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I... I It's really funny. It's so clear just from the characterization and the way these uh, characters interact with one another that they respect each other, even though they're disagreeing about what to do with the ring. Like Grey Mauser's not getting all hurt because Faffer just puts the ring on and smiles. Uh, He's just like, well, now we got (laughs) to deal with this situation if something ever happens. Yeah, I mean, they do make a good team. That's something that we're going to see, you know, especially if we read a lot of these stories, but they don't share a worldview. They have very different outlooks, just generic outlooks on on the universe, I think, as, as a whole. Yeah. All right. Well, let's continue on with the story here. At this point, Liber takes some time describing Fafford. And this is all from the Grey Mauser's point of view. And at this point, I just want to say that the story switches between these two characters' point of views. And Liber picks which point of view he wants to give the reader based on the exposition that he has to give. And and it really works here in in this story as the story is told in the third person. And and that surprised me that this works because usually switching point of views in a short story is a huge no-no. But I'm shocked at how well Liber makes this work. Anyway, Fatford is a big man with red hair. Uh, he's super good with boats and boat maintenance. He has a man bun. Uh, the Grey Mauser is comfortable on land as Fafford is on the sea. So, Glenn, as you already said, they're a really good team. And their skills and weaknesses, their competencies, all really complement one another. So they're content to be a team. Well, the day passes with Fafford eating and fishing, and the Grey Mauser is just kind of looking mysteriously around, wondering about if a storm is coming and... You know, he's really just busting Fafford's chops about this new jewelry. He's like, oh, are you going to find a, a a bracelet and a necklace to match your ring and another fish? Uh, and it's really funny. It's very congenial and, and fraternal. When the night comes, Fafford tells the Grey Mauser a story that he knows that relates to the ring and the key. Ages ago, he says, there was a land called Simorgia. His people, which they're like a Viking-like people, used to raid against it. But this was nobody's favorite thing to do for his people because Samorgia was far away from his homeland. Still, his homeland retained a few trinkets from those raiding days. And, you know, they're exactly like, or at least the inscriptions or style of art is exactly like the ring that Fafford found in this fish's belly. The men of Samorgia, he tells, were mighty magicians. They claimed power over the wind and the waves and the creatures below. And even with all that power, the sea still swallowed the land. 
One time, he says, some men went out to find some Morgia and they never came back, except the one who came back to tell the tale. And then later other ships went out and they could just never find the land again. The Grey Mauser asks, if Samorgia has sunken into the sea, might they be sailing over that sunken land now? And Fafford says, who can say? At this point, the Grey Mauser suggests that Fafford just dump the ring again. This is a bad trinket. It's a cursed object, basically. But Fafford just isn't going to do that. And then Fafford gets caught up in a kind of reverie. He imagines the strange land and the alien wizardry of Samorgia. And as he's lost in this reverie, he notices a huge galley ship heading towards their sloop, uh, their boat on the stormy sea. And then he goes to sleep because he's really not sure if what he's seen was in a dream or, or what, whatever. He's clearly falling asleep. And the Mauser takes his watch. Yeah, it's not clear to me, actually, if that ship is still in his reverie or if it is something that is actually real that he's noticing. I mean, it is going to turn out to be real. So even if this isn't his reverie, it's a premonition of sorts. But the the grammar here in this passage, I think, suggests that he actually is having a kind of actual premonition and not that he's really seeing this and just drifting off to sleep anyway. It's not a point that really matters. It's actually something I think that sort of heightens the, the, the mood of the story that we're unclear on that. And I really love the setup that we get here, right? We know that our heroes have just gotten a bit of treasure from, you know, imaginary Atlantis, uh, I will say. Well, I mean, okay, right. Atlantis, I guess, is imaginary. So it's imaginary, <laughs> imaginary Atlantis is really what I should say, right? But the point is, we know that's the adventure that they're going to have. And Libra has some really wonderful prose in this section as well. I just actually want to give a, a taste of it. So I'm going to read an entire paragraph here. In Fafred, the ring aroused strange memories. Recollections of certain legends told around flickering driftwood fires through the long northern nights. Tales of great seafarings and distant raids made in ancient days. Firelight glimpses of certain bits of loot taken by some unaccountably distant ancestor and considered too traditionally significant to barter or sell or even give away. Ominously vague warnings used to frighten little boys who were inclined to swim or sail too far out. And what I love about this passage, I mean, aside from the fact that it's literally all one sentence with a bunch of semicolons, <laughs> uh, what I love about this passage is how it is simultaneously vague and vivid. It, it creates an impression without telling us anything precise, and it really gets us in the right mood for this story without bogging us down in details, since ultimately the story is not going to be about solving puzzles. It's going to be about, hey, look at this cool setting, and Liber just nails that here. It's a stunning technical choice because Fafford only knows about this land from stories he's heard around the campfire as a, perhaps a drowsy child anyway. And so to bring us into that sense memory really lets us into Fafford's point of view and his subjective experience and subjective knowledge about this land. And then we're going to see the real thing, obviously, by the end of the story. And I, <laughs> and I really appreciate every technical choice Liber makes in this story actually is really strong. And he's clearly uh, you know, a master of what he's doing here. Well, we talked about how Fafford has gone asleep, but now he's woken up by Mauser, who was calling his name and notices that the weather has changed. What's really happened here is that the ship has been blown off course a little bit, and the Mauser needs help getting the ship back on course. Uh, and that requires, it's a two-man job on the, on the ship that they're on. So they do the work, they get back on course, and then they worry about whether or not the ship is actually going to be able to survive the high seas in a storm. The ship's not designed for that, though Fafford has spent a lot of time repairing and maintaining the ship. And again, that's one of his special skills. It doesn't matter if he's done the best job in the world. The ship is simply not built for the wild seas. And that's just a reality that they have to deal with. The Mauser is convinced that this weather change and the wild wind that has arisen is the result of Fafford having found the ring. And he implores Fafford at this point to toss the ring overboard before it brings in a hurricane. And Fafford just kind of smiles. <laughs> and that means no. And then <laughs> something really crazy happens. The Liber writes this. Out of the surging wall of darkness emerged the dragon-headed prow of a galley. This ship literally comes out of nowhere. And we already talked about how this was kind of in this dream imagery or uh, premonition type image that Fafford had as he was falling asleep. 
And Fafford, you know, has to wonder whether or not this ship now is another trick of the darkness or if it's real. But no, it's real. And the Mauser has to react very quickly and decisively in order to move their tiny sloop out of the path of the galley ship. Fafford, though, is just lost in this vision about whether or not this thing is real. And even though Mauser is shouting for Fafford to get out of the way, the boom swings as Mauser's adjusting the direction that the, their ship is going in, and it hits Fafford in his back and knocks him onto the pontoon of the sloop. And at that moment, an oar from the galley ship swings and knocks Fafford off of the pontoon into the sea. But Fafford clings to the oar, and then he climbs up the oar through the oar window onto the galley ship. So Fafford ends up making his way onto the galley ship, and of course, now he's got to fight. And he finds a sword, and then he fights some folks, mainly rowers, maybe a few other people on, on watch here. And this is some great swashbuckling writing if you're into that sort of thing. I am in this story. It's really well done. It's short enough to be enjoyable. Uh, it's it's not, you know, 10 to 12 pages of how the swords sound and, and the hilt and the taint and all of that <laughs> sort of stuff. It's just really fun action. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a totally crazy action scene. It It is not 12 pages long like we did get in that Solomon Kane story, right? Definitely <laughs> right. is not. But it is three pages long. It is just as long as everything else that we've actually had up to this point in the story. And it does just come out of nowhere. I mean, literally, right? Like it, the ship just comes out of nowhere. The action scene comes out of nowhere. There's no slow build to this. There's not even any regular build to this. There's no build at all. It just comes straight at us. Boom, here's some action. And it feels very much much like a D&D random encounter or, you know, to think about it in terms of like literary terms, I guess it feels like Libra's really taking seriously Raymond Chandler's advice to sometimes just have a man come through a door with a gun in order to add some excitement to your story and propel something forward, especially if you're stuck about, you know, in, in the writing of the story about where to go next or how to how to get to the next scene that you've in, envisioned. And you know, I will say, I think if you're principally here for action, then I think Liber has just delivered in a big way here with this scene. I agree. Some of the descriptions of this fighting, which we're not going to go into, it's not something we typically do on this show, but some of the descriptions of actions really capture what I imagine it would be like to actually sword fight on a boat. As the boat is swaying and balancing in the water, Fafford gets knocked off balance. Other people get knocked off balance. It's just, it's the natural world kind of participates in this sword fight. And I do think it's a really inspired piece of action writing that Liber has written here. But eventually Fafford does get overtaken because the boat swaying is not working in Fafford's favor and he gets captured and there's just nothing he can do. But he does notice that the folks on the galley ship are northerners like him. They might be from his own homeland. Eventually, though, as he's kind of Sitting with his hands behind his head. I don't know. <laughs> Someone comes <laughs> onto the poop deck and Fafford makes this man out to be a leader. Uh, something, though, is nagging at the back of Fafford's mind now that he has a moment to think. He realizes that he hasn't heard anybody speak. No one has shouted orders about what to do with this extra person on the ship who was fighting everybody. And that's strange. But anyway, the leader comes up at this point and Fafford asks this guy what his intention is. The leader doesn't speak or say anything, but he points to the empty space on the oar bench, the space where Fafford had thrown that person overboard, the oar that he climbed up. And basically, he's got to replace the oarman that he tossed off the ship. He thinks about his options, which are die or replace the Orman, basically. Like, he also wonders <laughs> if he could escape, and he realizes he can't, and accepts this new job because he sees some justice in the decision to have him replace the oarsman that he killed, I suppose. So he takes the spot of the oarsman and is kind of like, hey, you know, actually, this isn't too bad. It's not what I wanted to do with my day, but worse things could happen. <laughs> you know, at least the ship is crewed by my people. So Fafford becomes an oarsman 
And eventually someone comes out of the cabin beneath the poop deck and Fafford recognizes that this man is a mingle, which is a man. It's just a man from another land, I suppose. And, you know, we haven't read all of these stories, so I don't know the lore behind these these mingles. But this is the only person on the ship who was talking. And this man talks to Fafford and he makes him drink wine and tells him that Lavis Lyric may kill him in the morning. It's a very Dread Pirate Robert sort of encouragement here from the Princess Bride. <laughs> Lavis Lyric, it turns out, is the captain of the boat, and he only feeds his crew wine. Also, with the exception of the mingle, the oarsmen and crewmen have been put under a vow of silence. They're not allowed to speak. When Fafford tries to ask a question, the mingle shuts him up and says, basically, I know what you're going to ask me anyway, so I'll just answer your question. Lavis Lairk is on a raid to Samorgia, and the mingle now tells Fafford, quote, a secret that's no secret and makes a prophecy that's no prophecy. And here's what the mingle says. Lavis Lairk hates all men who are sober, for he believes and rightly that only drunken men are even a little like himself. Tonight, the wine will make them see at last the glow of visions that Lavis Lairk sees. But next morning, there will be aching backs and sick guts and pain-hammered skulls. And then there will be a mutiny, and not even Lavis Lairk's madness will save him. And as the mingle pronounces these final words, he sputters, and falls silent. And Fafford reaches over to touch him to see what's happened, and his hand comes away wet with blood. From behind the mingle, Lavis Lyric retrieves his dirk from the neck of the man, and briefly, tension floods the place where the oarsmen are. I don't know what to call the galley of the ship, I suppose it is called. Yeah. And they all get ready to fight. Because they liked the mingle on some level, and having the captain kill this man is a real blow to morale, and the <laughs> mingle's already predicted a mutiny. But before anything can happen, the steersman yells out that he has sighted land. And what's more, it's Samorgia, a great landmass has basically just appeared out of nowhere in the sea. Lavis Lyric calls out some command for readying the ship to land on this new landmass and passes out weapons and wine to make the men ready for a raid. Even Fafford gets a weapon, even though he thinks that's kind of weird because he was just like fighting these folks a couple <laughs> hours ago. Lavis Lyric, it turns out, thinks it's kind of weird too because he is looking at Fafford's hand. But it's not the weapon that he's looking at. It's the ring. So Lavis Lyric seizes Fafford and exclaims that Fafford is a Samorgian spy or agent or demon or, or something Samorgian at least. And then he takes the ring and the key from Fafford. One of Lyric's henchmen asks if they should kill Fafford, but Lyric says, let's let him live for now. Lavis Lyric is maybe not the best manager in, in the world, right? You've got the, the drunkenness, murder, just this random desire to find random people to fight. Uh, I know also that, you know, Liber has in mind Vikings here, but I have to say that really, these feel like Klingons. This is a Klingon ship is what's happening here. This is totally a space science fiction story. I mean, 100%. It's not, it's not Klingons here. It could be Gaul's or something like that as well, or, or some other random land. The crew disembark the, the ship at this point and start looking for loot and gold and stuff on the island. Uh, and eventually they come to a portal and a black rock. It's really just like a cave entrance. But it could have been an entrance to a castle at one point. There are strange carvings over the door and some pillars, and it all looks Samorgian. And at this, this is the point where this feels exactly like a season one episode of Stargate SG-1. It's like the guys <laughs> land somewhere, they see strange carvings, and they have to do some quick anthropology and sociology and archaeology and history to figure out what's going on. Uh, it's really a lot of fun. I mean, it totally reminds me of, of Stargate SG-1. In any event, these guys travel through the portal a little ways, and they find themselves in a Samorgian treasure house. There are a lot of symbols of sea monsters and scary things like giant snakes as carvings on the walls. And Fafford's worried, not just because of these carvings are bad portents, but because 
he has the sense that Samorgia has literally just risen up from the sea, like maybe a day or an even an hour ago. And that can't be a good sign. Like, why would Samorgia do that? Another thing that jumps out to Fafford is that there are no guards in the treasure house. And this leads the crew to go a little wild with regard to their looting. Lyric, though, is not as interested in looting. Fafford notices that Lyric is super interested in an odd square section of the wall. And on that section of the wall is a carving of a strange, undulant, blanket-like sea monster. It's a very strange description. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Like a very wide eel, maybe. Lyric walks over to the wall and he finds a keyhole. And then he uses the key on the ring to open the door. And Fathid realizes that he's been set up. Something put the key in his hands and led him to be captured by this galley ship because it wanted out of whatever kind of this dark Samorgian prison is. It wanted someone to open the door. So he just jets out of there because he's basically been forgotten by everybody and he does not look behind him. He runs in the direction of Gray Mauser's voice, who has managed to get the sloop close to the, this new landmass in the sea. And it's dangerous for Fafford to run on the rocky island at night. And this is just a little bit of extra tension added to the story. But Fafford does make it to his boat, and he and the Grey Mauser get out of there. And this takes some doing, especially as something like a tidal wave is chasing them. But they do make it. And it's not quite a tidal wave. It's more like Wake from Samorgia sinking back into the sea. And in this case, their small ship is an asset, not a liability, because it can float a little easier on top of the water than a larger ship would be able to. Eventually, the Grey Mauser and Fafford get the ship back on course, they get it done by dawn, and they are both exhausted. The Mauser brings Fafford some food and some bitter wine, I guess, to deal with his hangover. And <laughs> Fafford asks the Mauser what he saw, as you know, as I mentioned, Fafford never looked back when he was running. And the Mauser tells Fafford then what it was that he saw in the cavern, in the treasure house. He had a good line of sight into that uh, portal in the, in the rock wall. This is what the Mauser says. Well, what I thought I saw was this. A crowd of men wearing big black cloaks, they looked like northerners, came rushing out of an opening of some sort. There was something odd about them. The light by which I saw them didn't seem to have any source. Then they waved the big black cloaks around as if they were fighting with them or doing some sort of dance. I told you it was very foolish. And then they got down on their hands and knees and covered themselves up with the cloaks and crawled back into the place from which they had come. Fafford says basically that the men didn't bring any cloaks with them and whatever was there in the room was something else, you know, like an undulant black blanket-like creature, perhaps. <laughs> and Fafford here goes on to curse Samorgia and hopes it will never rise from the sea again and that it will just turn to muck. And in the distance, the two men can make out the distant sight of land. And that is how the story ends. This is a totally crazy ending, and it's very quick, really. Liber has built up this mystery and this sense of doom about Samorgia, but then kind of not really done anything with it. The basic outline of the plot of the story is, is really it's, it's this. Dude finds an old ring. Dude gets captured by Vikings or, you know, Klingons is my assertion here. Uh, dude goes with Vikings into an old building. Dude gets scared and runs away. That's the story. Uh, that's a really bad outline for a story uh, in large part because it doesn't have a protagonist this story right Fafford doesn't actually do anything in this story and ultimately I think it's fair to say that nothing at all is really done by anyone to overcome any kind of obstacle or solve any kind of puzzle or affect any kind of change in the world yet somehow I freaking loved this story i loved the ride here i, I enjoyed the hell out of this and I, I guess it's really like the first discussion question that i have for you brandon is whether this story worked for you or not it did a hundred percent i am coming more and more to appreciate even though 
what I'm about to say has to be handled the right way. But I'm really coming to appreciate the action hero as witness uh, style of storytelling. It's not great if you're a beginner writer and you've written a story with an outline like I just laid out and you're having your protagonist just witness events. That's a really bad idea, but handled in the right way. And once you kind of get some real expertise under your belt and some real technical chops, it can just be a great asset as a mode of storytelling. And and Liber just nails it. What he gets right is characterization. Your protagonist just can't be an action person who witnesses stuff. They have to be a really good character that you care about what they're witnessing and why they're witnessing it. And Liber sets all of that up really well. Fafford has some understanding of Samorgia, so he's the right person to see what's going on. He he understands some of the lore. He's a good fighter, so his capture and all that stuff makes sense. He knows Gray Mauser is going to come get him. And we feel that as well because of the way Liber has described their relationship through this small bits of descriptive prose and characterization. So I will say that this story really worked for me, but I do not recommend it as a template if you're going to try to copy this type of writing to tell your own sort of story. Yeah, that's absolutely where I want to go next with this, because I think I love this story. You love this story. We, we both love this story. There's no way that anyone could sell this story to a magazine today, right? Just would not fly. Your your plots need to have, or really your your stories need to have protagonists and you need to have much clearer like obstacles for said protagonist to overcome. And you need really just more of a hero's journey or an arc to sell stories in the extremely limited magazine market that there is for this type of story, for fantasy stories and, and supernatural horror stories as well. Today, you and I both know this. We get a lot of rejection notes. So we know this. <laughs> we know this well. And so really what I want to take this because we have so many writers who listen to the show is in thinking about what we might do to give this story an, an ending or, or even really maybe the, the plot. We could really do some things with the second act as well, I think, that would actually be more uh, satisfying, maybe not necessarily to contemporary readers, but more satisfying to contemporary editors. What are some just some changes that you might suggest to this story if I had sent it to you and said it was my own, Brandon? Well, the, the, the first thing I want to say, kind of returning to your first question a little bit, is, is a part of why this story reminded me so much of like an early season of Stargate SG-1, which, hey, I'm still in season one. I pretty much binge it around Christmas time <laughs> in the evening. So when I have a little bit of time alone when I'm on vacation. So I'm, I'm, I'm not like actively watching the show. But uh, part of why it reminded me so much of SG-1 and probably part of why it reminds you of Star Trek is that the cast on those shows are primarily witnesses. They're going to another world, another place, and their job is to just witness what that place is and what its customs are. They're scientists, uh, though, of course, MacGyver is an action hero, uh, Colonel O'Neill. So, you know, he can he can like pull the trigger and stuff if, if that ever arises. But like diplomacy, um, solving the mystery of the place, things like that work really well in that monster of the week TV environment. And so if I think if you're going to write a story that has that more protagonist as witness feel to it, you need to give them a reason to witness what they're witnessing, which Liber doesn't give us here. This is a series of stories about adventurers and it has then um, a picaresque feel to it, which is people going around seeing different parts of, of the world in the most reductionist form of describing that genre. <laughs> uh, so you really need to nail down as writing advice. I would say you need to really make these characters pop off the page in a way that allows for these other what would be seen as deficits in the storytelling department. I think Liber pulls that off here. Uh, but I think if you and I wrote a first or second draft of this story, that's the advice that we would give each other. Nail the characterization. Make your character somebody who needs to see something um, to resolve something in themselves. So for Fafford here... Maybe have him a personal stakes, like his grandfather was lost in that Samorgian raid or something like that. And then throw in something about finding a pile of bones with some identifying jewelry or something from his grandfather at the end. So he gets closure. So that's the kind of thing that I would think about if I were 
uh, if you gave me a story like this and I were giving you advice on it and it was still an early draft, that's the sort of thing I would I would tell you. Right. I mean, that's the basic gist of what a story is, right? A story is about a person who wants something, a person who has a goal. And then this is the story of how that person tries to get that thing or accomplish that goal. Motive, right? Character motive. There is no character motive in this story at all. Everything that happens is just an accident and, and it's about witnessing, as, as you said, Brandon. And so, yeah, I mean, to make, if you want to keep Fafford as the, the sort of main point of view character here, I think those are some great suggestions about how to go about doing that, giving him some motive, giving him some goal, something he is trying to do. And then, of course, right, you have to throw obstacles in the way of your character uh, that they have to overcome in order to try to accomplish their goal. And they don't have to accomplish their goal for there to be a successful story. You could you could have them lose, right? So you could still actually preserve much of this ending of, of Fafford just having to run to, to get the heck out of here because there is this scary thing that he's encountered, but to at least have given him some sort of motive, some sort of goal would be great there. I think actually I would flip it around and I would use really everything that we get. I would keep everything that we get up until the point that they really get to Samorgia. And I would actually make all of that the inciting incident for a story that's actually about the Grey Mouser, who now has to go find Fafford. And then I would tell the story from that perspective, since we get the ending from his perspective anyway, right? He's the one who suddenly becomes the storyteller within the story, telling Fafford about the adventure Fafford just had, right? Like, well, this is what you didn't see because your back was to it, right? <laughs> so we could actually just tell that from Grey Mauser's perspective, since we're already swapping point of views a lot in this story, which, as you said, is generally that's, you know, forbidden, but I actually think also worked super well in this story. But so, yeah, that's what I would do. I would just add five pages to this story and really make it about the Grey Mauser searching for Fafford. And you could really keep everything that's already in here, but you would give us a character with a, a motive and a, you know a goal and some other obstacles here as as well. Yeah, that's excellent advice too. I, I guess, yeah, I wouldn't actually change anything about this story, which is why I, I said just right, right. Throw, in, <laughs> throw in three sentences about Fafford's grandfather and you've got yourself at least a, ca- a character arc of some kind. Well, and I wouldn't really change anything about this story either. I absolutely loved it. And I, I'm a big fan actually of hey, the world is the world and uh, these sort of simulationist type stories where things just happen to people and they can be cool and interesting and we don't actually need necessarily a lot of strong goals and strong motive and strong objectives. But those are the hardcore rules of short story writing and and editors are are pretty serious about about enforcing those <laughs> these days that you've got to have something like that. Uh, at least at least if you're trying to make your first sale, right? And this, we should be clear, was not the first of these stories. This is the fourth of these stories. Stories. They're all published in the, the same magazine. So at this point, Liber has probably earned the right to flaunt all of the conventions of the, the medium, all the conventions of short story writing and publish a story like this. So so maybe that's the advice, really, right, is, is uh, write three stories that follow the rules with the same characters, and then you can send a fourth one out to the editor and, and, and they'll buy it. Right. Yeah. If it's selling magazines, you can you can write anything, basically. <laughs> right. That is the number one rule. Well, I want to shift gears here from thinking about the, the structure of this story to thinking about these characters. I think we both really responded to these Fafford and, and Grey Mauser stories were wildly influential in the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. And I think you could see that even just in this one example here, although I also think this story is maybe not especially representative of the Fafford and Grey Mauser stories. Uh, I mean, I've got like a pretty limited sample size, but I don't think this story is maybe especially representative of them. At least that's sort of my feeling about this. There's actually like a 10 year gap between the first like eight or nine of these stories and then like the next 35 of these stories. And I've only read the stories from like the 60s and 70s where he wrote most of them. So this story from the 40s felt a little bit different from my memory of the later stories at any rate. But We can set all that aside. And really what I want to do here is just to say that even with this incredibly limited sample size of, hey, we've read this one story together, uh, I wonder if these two title characters here suggest uh, any D&D character classes to you. And I guess what I'm really interested in here, Brandon, is why? Uh, and and what we're trying to do is just to really think about how Viber builds up his characters. Ultimately, this is sort of a writing craft question. But if you had to assign a D&D character class to Fafford and to Grey Mouser, which would they be? That That is truly an excellent question. Uh, so I'm going to really 
demonstrate my ignorance here, not just of D&D character classes, but of the cycle of stories that is Fafrin and the, and the Grey Mauser as well, because all I know about them is from this story. So this is just coming straight off the cuff. But I would think, you know, Fafford feels more of a, like a barbarian type of character. And the Grey Mauser, just from this story, feels a little bit like a wizard, right? He's he's more interested in knowledge. Uh, he's kind of useless on the ship, though he's pretty good at using it. And his role in the story is more about getting information, in a sense, and being wary of cursed objects and things like that. So some kind of magic-using class. But I'm not sure. We do get a sense in this story that uh, the Grey Mauser is also a good fighter. So he might be... I don't know, maybe more of a like a paladin or a rogue or something like that. I don't know. You'd know better than me. Well, yeah, some kind of rogue is more what I had in mind for Grape Mauser. Uh, you know, ignorance of D&D classes is fine. There, there are so many different versions of D&D, right? There's different versions even of just OD&D. And then there's uh, AD&D. There's AD&D 2nd Edition third, fourth, I think we're on fifth now, though six is almost certainly going to be coming soon, right? And the classes change. I mean, that's part of why, you know, they update the games. But yeah, Grey Mouser, I think, is definitely some kind of rogue. Uh, Thief might really, you know, which is the original sort of character class there for that is, is I think, probably the best fit, though I always played bards in AD&D 2nd Edition, which is like, that's my version of D&D. And so that's kind of how I want to see Grey Mouser there. And, you know, Bards are thieves with some bit of magic ability, essentially, uh, might be one way to describe them. So I think you and I are both kind of envisioning him in, in very similar ways there. And I think you're absolutely right about Fafford as well being a barbarian. I mean, for one thing, he doesn't have enough vowels in his name. And that's a that's a clear sign of lack of civilization. <laughs> you don't have enough vowels in your name, right? And H is not exactly. a vowel, is what I want to say here, right? And uh, so, yeah, definitely a barbarian, right? I mean, he's he's someone who, I mean, he really would just fit fit in on this on this ship with no problem. And and we can just see that even from just this one story. I think this is really clear. And what that says to us, right, is that these characters are really well drawn. And I think it is the characters here in this story that really make the story pop, right? That we get all this great uh, dialogue between them. We get this great interaction between them, but we also get to see them respond very differently to the same set of circumstances, right? Like Fafford's sort of response to, oh, holy crap, there's a ship here, is to to like, you know, board it, right? And the Grey Mauser's <laughs> response to this is, I would like to get us out of danger. Like, I will steer the ship, right? And uh, and that's just brilliant storytelling there. It really is. And it speaks to why this story works so well. I mean, we were talking about kind of the current magazine market and what editors are looking for. One thing that I find is common across all the magazines is the phrase character driven. Uh, the kind of stories about ideas are just not the trend right now, purely about ideas, I should say. It seems like a lot of speculative fiction magazine editors really want stories with strong characterization. And this is a great example of that type of story. In just 10 pages, we have a really strong sense of who these characters are, what they'll do in a given situation, and their relationship. And that is no small feat. Liber has really pulled off something special here. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought in that phrase, character-driven, because that, that was the phrase that I should have been using in the, the really the the, the story doctor in question that I asked you, because although this is a story with, I think, really well-drawn characters, as we said, Fafford doesn't, or, or Grey Mouser, there's no goal, there's no motive here. And that is really what these editors mean when they say character-driven, is that they want your characters to have a goal, an objective, and for that to be driving the story. And that you're right, what they're, what they're saying they don't want is uh, science fiction as literature of ideas, and they don't want fantasy as the literature of cool settings, which is ultimately what this story is. It's like, hey, here's some two really interesting characters. They don't have anything to do, but look, check it out. They're at this really cool uh, fake Atlantis I've invented that's got some Lovecraftian elements to it. Check it out, which is, that's my jam. That's what I want to go to fantasy <laughs> for, but like, that's just not what magazine editors or maybe even novel editors are, are going to, book editors are, are going to buy anymore. And so we have to be thinking about, yeah, about character driven. I'm glad you brought that phrase in. I'm so bad at, at it that I can't even think of what it is that editors <laughs> label what they're looking for. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right to point out that the, the kind of past trends of both science fiction and fantasy have been 
literature of ideas, literature of setting, th- and that there's an attempt now in the speculative fiction world to kind of at least update those ideas to modernism, at least, which is the internal lives of a well-drawn character. And yeah, you can have a cool setting and yeah, you can have all these speculative elements, but I think they're trying to catch up to the you know, trends of, of modern literature, modernist literature, at least, or postmodern literature on some level, rather than kind of being stuck in what can kind of feel dated and stale, just having a character be like, I, there's, there's a computer that runs the world or something like that. And just having that character in that world, there's a, there's a push to kind of get, to update the trends, to make it more, or to appeal more to a broader audience who's already reading stuff that at least the characters are familiar, even if these other elements are not. Yeah, and Sword and Sorcery has been having a real revival in the the last ten years. There actually are a number of uh, of magazines that will publish Sword and Sorcery tales. There've been uh, a lot of anthologies as well. So people are writing this now, and presumably with uh, those types of of contemporary interests in mind. And you know, given that we are uh, going to follow this up immediately with some Conan, uh, <laughs> which, you know, even predates this by by thirty years, it might be fun actually for us to just go on our on our own. Maybe we'll do it as a Patreon episode. Go see what people are doing you know now in the the 21st century with this mode of storytelling but but making it those character driven types of plots but uh, i don't know we'll report back on that and but i guess what i will say is if listeners have any ideas or suggestions for that we would love to love to have them but i, I guess if we're looking ahead like that uh, we're done with this story so that is going to do it for this episode i'm glenn mcdorman and I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love for you to support the network in order to get access to the dozens of bonus episodes that we've done on our Patreon page, including stories from The King in Yellow, the first Robert E. Howard Conan story, The Phoenix and the Sword, and many, many others, including, I don't know, crossover episodes. <laughs> For covering TV shows and things like that. So please at least go to our Patreon page, see if what's there interests you and can consider supporting us. And as we always like to say, if you can't support us on Patreon, write a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or another network. That helps us out a lot as well, and that costs you nothing. Yeah, we really appreciate all of the support that we we get from you. It's, uh, it's now we're able to stay on the air, and we're, we're so glad to have you helping us out like that. And also, while you're on the internet doing those things, we would love to talk with you about this story. So please come by the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit. Let us know what you thought of this story. If you've got any story doctoring ideas or just want to use this story as a prompt for your own story that you'd like to share with us, we would uh, we would absolutely love to, to read those. Uh, and also, if you've got suggestions for contemporary sword and sorcery uh, short stories or maybe a novella that we could check out, we would love to have those as well. And next time, we are going to be back continuing our little uh, foray into sword and sorcery here with the first of two episodes on the Conan novella, Queen of the Black Coast by Robert E. Howard. I'm very excited for that. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>